so much to be thankful for. When I was watching them write those letters, I was uh, reminded of uh, Fred Rogers. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, I do encourage you uh, to go see it. It's a very different uh, kind of movie. How many of y'all recognize the name Fred Rogers from It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood? Okay, good, good. We show our age as we raise our hands there, but... 1962 on and off till 2001, uh, he had that show. But anyhow, in the movie, they ask him, well, how does he maintain such a good attitude? I know he gets, he must be like everybody else. He gets angry, has hard days, bad days. And his wife said, well, here's what he does. And she says this in the film, in the movie, because it's true. Number one, he reads the Bible every day. Number two, he prays for people by name, and, and his wife said, and a bunch of people by name. Number three, he writes letters. He writes many, many letters to express his thanks and to let people know he's, uh, he's praying for them. And then he likes to go swim, she said. He likes to swim, and that just kind of burns off any kind of excess kind of energy built up. And so I asked you last week, if you would, take up the challenge to read your Bible and to pray every day and see what a difference it would make in your day and in your week. And I know some of you have taken me up on that. You did it because you told me, and I'm, I'm grateful for you doing that. Just grateful to God today for so many uh, reasons. We're blessed to be able to uh, to be here and worship the Lord today. Uh, Pastor Chester here sitting up on the front. He's going to be preaching for me next week. And so we want you to come and to hear Pastor Chester bring the, the message. The Word of God always does a great job. You were in revival just last week, were you not? In First Baptist Valdosta, I think it was, Georgia, and had a great meeting there. So you'll want to come and hear him, and it'll be a great time. So we're in the book of Acts, and if you have your Bible, we'd love for you to turn to Acts chapter 7. I'll read verses 54 through 60, and that will be our text today. This is the fifth sermon. Can you believe it? Five sermons on one chapter in the Bible. However, there are 60 verses, so, you know, it, it just going to take a little bit of time. But we have these five sermons. We have all of these messages that we're going to preach on the book of Acts, and I'm so excited to be able to do this, to go verse by verse uh, through the Word of God. And if you're new to Great Hills, we're delighted that you're here today. I know many of you are visiting for the very first time. I've met some of you. Many of you are watching us online through our YouTube channel, our Facebook and Twitter feed. So if you are watching us on Facebook, if you just push the share button, that way you can let everybody know that you are worshiping at Great Hills Baptist Church and you will be a blessing to get other people involved. I think we had over 400 people worshiping with us a couple of weeks ago online, which is fantastic. And so our online congregation uh, continues to grow and we're delighted that you people are watching us online and we're so good and glad and blessed of God to be here and just to, um, I mean, to worship him and to study his word and what a, what a blessing it is. So today we're in Acts chapter seven. And again, if you're new to Great Hills, just come right on in, join us in verse 54 through 60. And the title of my message is the only time I read about this in the Bible. The title of my message is When Jesus Stands. Most of the time we read in the Bible, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But in this instance, we read where Jesus very conspicuously is standing in heaven. And you'll realize why here in just a moment as we read the, read the text. Okay, you ready? Let's read it. Y'all ready to hear the Word of God? You excited about it? All right, good, good. Now, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. 
One translation says they were sawed in two and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, notice the contrast, he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing, standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, look, I see heaven. The heavens are opened and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they ran at Stephen with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Of course, this would be Saul of Tarsus who would later become the Apostle Paul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And so we just pray that God would add the blessings to the reading of his word and he would open your ears and open your heart and your mind and open my mouth and my tongue so that I might be able to communicate the message that God would have me to communicate, not, not just, um, not, not just for, for you and for your family, but for every person that would hear this message today. When Jesus Christ, when he stands. There are a couple things about this text as I've read it and studied it over and over. Two things really jump out at me as, I, as I'm reading this word. First of all, is the resemblance of Stephen to Jesus. I don't know if you caught that. There are just many similarities between Jesus Christ and this young man, Stephen, the first, by the way, Christian martyr. And the second thing that just really is conspicuous to me that jumps out at me is the contrast between Stephen and the people who are murdering him. There's a, there's a direct correlation, a distinct resemblance to Jesus and Stephen, and yet there is a very contrast, I mean a tremendous differentiation between the life of Stephen and the lives of these uh, Sanhedrin. In fact, that's what I'm going to do today. My whole sermon is a study in contrast. I want to look at with you at the life of Stephen juxtaposed over against the life of the Sanhedrin. But before I do that, let me, let me just read something to you that really this one writer just captures the essence of the, simil the, the similarity between Jesus and Stephen. And this is what he says. Jesus was filled with the Spirit, so was Stephen. Jesus was full of grace, so was Stephen. Jesus boldly confronted the religious establishment of his day, so did Stephen. Jesus was convicted by lying witnesses, so was Stephen. Jesus had a mock trial, so did Stephen. Both were accused of blasphemy, both died outside the city and were buried by sympathizers. Both prayed for the salvation of their executioners. Now listen to this question. Was there ever a man more like Jesus than Stephen? Isn't that amazing? Was there ever a man more like Jesus than this man, this man that the Bible describes as a deacon? He is a deacon at the church there in Jerusalem. He is a man, the Bible says, he is filled man. He is full. He is full of the Holy Spirit, of wisdom, power, 
and grace. And I'm telling you, you just look at Stephen and go, wow, I, I wouldn't mind being like that guy. He is so much like our Lord, which begs the question, are you? Is there a resemblance in your life and my life to the life of the one that we say that we follow? Do we forgive, for example, those who hate us? Do we stand boldly and proclaim the name of Jesus even when it could be costly? It could cost us a reputation. It could cost us some friendships. It could cost us our jobs. It could even cost us our own lives. Do we love Jesus the way Stephen loved him? There, there's a book written a number of years ago and it still bothers me, this book does. Not because it's inaccurate, but because it's so accurate. The name of the book is Unchristian by Dave Kinnaman. His argument is there are, there's such a disconnect between Jesus and the Bible and Christians in America and it's absolutely confusing to a world that is looking on. For example, he says, he does study after study, he says, what is it that, that alienates you from the Jesus of the Bible? And, and everybody, they say the same thing, oh, it's the Christians. It's like, um, it's like Gandhi, he said, oh, I would become a follower of Christ if it were not for the Christians. So I just hope and pray for you and for me that there's not this great disconnect between the life of Jesus and our lives. I know we're not perfect, I know we're gonna fall, I know we're gonna make mistakes, however, over the course of our lives, I pray for you and I pray for me that they would look at us or look at our church and they would say, you know, that guy, that gal, that church, they remind me of the person that they follow and they worship, they remind me of Christ. There's so many resemblances of this man, Stephen, and the Lord that he said uh, that he adored. And yet, there's so many contrasts and differences between Stephen and the Sanhedrin. So let's look at them. We're just going to walk through them one by one. The first, I've described it this way, the one and the many. The one and the many. And you see it in the pronouns in verse 54. When they heard, they would be uh, the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is a 71-member council. They are seated, and Stephen is standing before them, kind of like in a semicircle, and Stephen is on trial for his life. He has been accused of the following, blasphemy. They accused him of blaspheming the name of God, the temple of God, Moses, and the law of God. And Stephen has given a beautiful rebuttal, a remonstrance. He has demonstrated that he is not guilty of any of those things. But he loves God and he loves, he loves what the temple represents. He loves the law. He loves Moses. No, he says, I'm not the guilty one. You're the guilty one. And that's, he was so bold in saying that. And really, it eventuates into his martyrdom because he said, I love the Lord and I love the law of Moses. Jesus is the fulfillment. And you don't recognize him. You didn't recognize him and you killed him. And so it says in verse 54, when they heard these things... Stephen's response, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed their teeth at him, him being uh, a Stephen. And it dawned on me as I was reading this, just because you are outnumbered does not mean you're wrong. Now, just because you're the only one standing in your office the only student at your university in your class that you know of that is a devote, devoted follower of Jesus Christ, just because you are that single solitary soul does not mean you are wrong. It could very well mean you're right. 
that you're doing the right thing. I hope you can picture in your mind's eye, there's 71 against one, and there Stephen stands, full, number two, of the Holy Spirit, juxtaposed against the Sanhedrin. They were not filled with the Holy Spirit. They had a different kind of spirit. You, you ever heard that saying before? Oh, come enjoy the spirits that we will consume. Well, there, there are spirits in this world. There is the Holy Spirit, and then there are other spirits. And Stephen was, not just that he had the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that he was filled with the Spirit, and contrast that to them, they were filled with what? With rage, with anger, with revenge. I, I think, I, I can't demonstrate this, I can't prove it, but I think what they were filled with on the inside was demonstrated on the outside. I believe that the face of Stephen, it probably just glowed. And there was this euphoria, this joy, this very palpable moment, this obvious conspicuous moment that he is standing there before God and before his accusers and, and he looks up and he says, oh wow, do y'all see it? I see the glory of God and I see Jesus. Oh my goodness, he is standing and, and they didn't see it because they were so filled with rage and jealousy and bitterness and envy and anger and I think it was demonstrably noticeable on their countenances. When people look at you, what do they see? Do they see an old church curdmudgeon? I'm just mad at everybody, mad at the world, you know. Like Tony the Tiger, he's mad, you know. Or, or, or do people look at you and go, man, where'd you get that smile on your face? What is going on with you? What's happening in your life? And you say, well, that's... Oh, the Lord, he's just been so, so good to me. You know, Stephen's full. The Bible says being filled, it's a present tense. It's interesting. It's, he was continually being filled. But notice with me in verse 55, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice it does not say he is filled with grace and with wisdom and with power and all those other things in chapter six, and that is important. But the most important thing that Stephen had going for him is that he had the Spirit of God within him. And when you have the Spirit of God bubbling up in you, it, it just can't help but spill out over on people that you come in contact with. One of the ways we know we're, we're filled with the Spirit of God is we have the fruit of the Spirit of God. You know, these, these beautiful triplets, I guess you could call them. There's three of them. There's the love and joy and peace. Then you got love, joy, peace, patience. Uh, you know, I, I pray these every morning. I should be able to memorize them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Thank you, Lord. I had a moment there. Um, and, and you just see these just embodied in this one guy. I mean, he is... He is just filled. And that speaks to me because he's so outnumbered. <laughs> I mean, he's 71 to 1. He's about to lose his life. And yet he has this very obvious filling of God's spirit and this, this joy. Um, this guy's name is an interesting name. Let me see if I can, uh, I, I can say his last name. Uh, here it comes. Zachariah Botros is his name. 
He's an 85-year-old converted Muslim, converted to Jesus Christ. And I've been, I've been following this man for years and I was researching him some more this year and he still is considered public enemy number one among the jihadist Muslims around the world. One writer said, six million Muslims come to faith in Jesus every year and Zakaria Botros is responsible for most of them. He said, well, how in the world does he do that? He's in hiding. You can't find him. But somehow, some way, he has figured out a way to broadcast the gospel in these Islamic nations. And they can't find him and they can't shut off the satellite. They can't prevent him. And he, he just keeps preaching the gospel. Joel Rosenberg says in his article, and here's the title of the article, exclusive, Al-Qaeda targets leading Arab evangelist operating in the United States for preaching the gospel to Muslims. And this is what he writes. Zakaria uses state-of-the-art satellite technology to bypass the efforts of Islamic governments to keep the gospel out of their countries. He directly challenges the claims of Muhammad to be a prophet and the claims of the Quran to be God's word. He systematically deconstructs Muhammad's life story by story, pointing out the character flaws and the sinful behavior of Muhammad. He carefully deconstructs the Quran, verse by verse, citing contradictions and inconsistencies. And not only does he explain without apology what he believes is wrong with Islam, comma, here it comes. I can't wait to read this next part to you. Yes, he systematically and very eloquently delivers this polemic that shows the, the real Muhammad, who he was and the murderer that he was and the lifestyle that he lives. And he puts it on display and he shows the inconsistencies of the holy book, the Quran. And Muslims are looking at it almost like for the first time and going, wow, I didn't really notice that. And they're coming to Christ in droves. Let me just tell you something, friend. Deconstruct the life of Jesus Christ, analyze him, memorize him, parse him. You'll see no murdering. You'll see no adultery. You'll see the righteousness of God. And that, that my friend, is the difference. I'm telling you, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm not a follower of Muhammad because of Muhammad. Because Jesus Christ was the pure, blessed, righteous son of God. And and Botros, he, he points these things out and people are like, their eyes are open and they're flocking to Christ. As I said a couple of weeks ago, the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. Did you know that? In Iran, where you are persecuted and you can die a martyr's death in Iran and yet the church is absolutely exploding. Now, here's the last part of the quote. <laughs> Listen to this. Okay, let me back up just a little bit. And not only does he explain without apology what he believes is wrong with Islam, he goes on to teach Muslims from the Bible why Jesus loves them and why he is so ready to forgive them and adopt them into his family no matter who they are or what they have done, end of quote. That's the gospel. That's grace. You know, that's the thing about us. We, we, we can err on one side or the other. I, I don't want to err on either side. I want to be fully honest 
and speak the truth because the truth is the truth, right? But I want to do it with love and with compassion like this Sakaria Botros guy. I mean, he systematically reveals and, and, and shows the truth and then he goes, but listen, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and he does it with such joy and with such compassion. And here you have this 85-year-old converted Muslim preacher and it's like you got all these people against him and yet he's got the favor of God. It kind of reminds me of Stephen. Number three is the spiritual sight that Stephen had and the blindness that the Sanhedrin had. Did you see that in verses 55 and 66? 56, Stephen sees what the Sanhedrin could not see. Notice the two clear things that Stephen saw. First, it says he saw the glory of God. Time out. What is that? What does it look like to see the Shekinah glory of God? The Bible says God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the Bible also says that the exact manifestation and representation, the icon of who the Father is, is Jesus Christ. And then you have the Holy Spirit. So you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this triune God. And when Stephen looks up, the Bible says he sees the glory of God. He, he sees that Shekinah presence of God that was with the the people in the Old Testament and the manifestation of that glory and that presence was Jesus Christ not sitting. Did you catch that? Not sitting, but he is standing. You know, as I was studying this, I was thinking about the times where Jesus is seen seated. Let me give you one example is Ephesians 1.20. It says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Another example would be the Son of Man, Mark 14, 62. Jesus said, uh, Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. And then he rises up and he comes on the clouds of heaven. So I just ask us today, why is Jesus standing when all the other times in the Bible we see him seated? Could it be? Could it be that he's pleased? Could it be that he sees the travail and the, and the pain and the suffering that his servant has gone through and, and Jesus rises, oh my word, what would that day be like when we enter into the very presence, the Shekinah glory presence of God Almighty in heaven? What, what would that day be like? And Jesus Christ here for this faithful martyr, he stands to, to receive him. Something else that I find interesting in this is that Jesus is described as the Son of Man. Do you see that in verse 56? And the Son of Man standing. By the way, that's one of, I think, 84 references in the Bible to Jesus as the Son of Man. That's his favorite designation for himself. Yes, Son of God, but Son of Man. It reminds you of Daniel 7. I think it's 13 and 14 where it says, and the ancient of days, the Father, God the Father. You see it in Daniel 7 where he gives the kingdom over to the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is obviously Jesus Christ. And what just so impresses me today as I look at this contrast is Stephen saw it and they didn't see it. And it's the same today in, in in our land and every land when it comes to Christianity 
those who believe, they see. And those who demand that they see first, they never believe. You, you ever saw that? You have to believe. In Christianity, seeing is, is believing. That we believe first. And there Stephen sees Almighty God. And he sees Jesus Christ, his son, standing, welcoming him in. Wow. The next contrast I want to show you is number four is the martyrdom and the murder. The martyrdom, obviously, is what happens to Stephen, and the murder is played out before us, and it's pretty graphic here in verses 58. Uh, well, first of all, in 57, they cried out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears, they ran at him with one accord. I was, it was interesting as I was studying this, I noticed that the evil intention in their heart would be manifested with physical attributes. L let me read this to you. For example, they heard with their ears, y'all watching me? They gnashed with their teeth, they cried out with their voices, they ran with their feet, they laid their hands on him, they threw him out of the city, and then they, those same hands, they picked up stones and pelted him and murdered him. There's a progression here. And it's always the case. It is eventually whatever is in us within our spirit, within the deep recesses of our soul will eventually will come out of our lives. And whether that is full of the Holy Spirit and that is helping people and being very kind and benevolent, or it's the spirit of self and the spirit of selfishness and it comes out, it comes out, first of all, you usually see it with a very angry countenance. I mean, like a, I mean, just angry. And by the way, I'm not talking about just, just people outside the church. I'm talking a lot of people within the church. There's the scowl, there's this anger on their countenance and you're like, but anybody tell you that Jesus arose from the dead? I mean, Christ reigns. He's alive. I mean, I don't know we all have bad days and I know the times are hard for sometimes, but listen, overall, there should be this joy. There should be this fruit of the Spirit because Jesus Christ reigns and He is alive. And yet, whatever's on the inside, in fact, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will, will speak. Verse 58, according to the Jewish law, those who blaspheme God shall be put to death. According to the Mishnah, which is an interpretation of the Old Testament law, they describe for us how the execution is to be carried out. I'm, I'm telling you, this is graphic. I'm just going to go have to share it with you. Here's what would happen. If someone is found guilty of blasphemy, they would take that person and they would take him and, and to a, a hill, usually about 10 to 12 feet high, and his accusers would take him, and, and usually those who had the evidence and the proof against the person would be the ones who would do this. This is not what's happening in our text. What, what we're happening in our text is this violent mob rage mentality. But here's the way it's supposed to have went down. You're supposed to have taken the person and you throw them off. Now, you may not think 10 or 12 feet is very high, but if you land a certain way, you're going to break something. You, you might even break your neck and die. But if you don't die... Then the next thing they do is they take a stone, a boulder really, and they roll it to the precipice of the hill and they position the person who's fallen right there and they roll the stone off and it, and it lands on him. It's supposed to land somewhere in his chest cavity and it's supposed to burst his heart. If that doesn't work, they take another stone 
and they roll the stone over on that person then, if that doesn't kill him, then they pick up the stones one-on-one and throw it. And by the way, I know as, as inhumane as that sounds, the first way to go is the, really the way to go. Because if, if the fall doesn't kill you, then that next big stone's gonna kill you and it's over. But that's not what they did to Stephen. They took him, they thrust him in the midst, and they all grabbed stones. And they took their stones, I'm rocks, size of baseballs, if you will, and they are just hurling them at him. And that's why it's kind of elongated. That's why it says he can see and, and he's cognizant and he, and he looks up, maybe a near-death experience, right? He's near death. He has not died. And yet he sees what nobody else can see. He's about to die, but before he dies, he literally says, look, there he is. And, and, and you, you just know there's this joy, even in the midst of the pain and the suffering, he sees the ancient of days. He sees God the Father, and he sees Jesus Christ, even in the midst of his, his martyrdom. No doubt in Matthew chapter 10, 32 and 33, he, these things are happening, and he's experiencing it firsthand. When Jesus said, can, can we find that text? I'm, I may be a little ahead of y'all, but Matthew 10, 32 and 33, therefore, whoever confesses me before men Jesus said, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Well, verse 56 is too much for the Sanhedrin. And they come, they rush in upon him, and they, they kill him. And they martyr him. By the way, this is the same group. This is the same group that had Jesus put to death, not by stoning, but by convincing the Romans that they should execute him. I'm talking about Jesus. This is the same group that Saul, who became, becomes Paul, he will appear before them later on in his life as well. And they are the ruling elite, the aristocracy of Israel. And they, to them, the temple is what's sacred. And they, they, just, they just believe that the little of the law, and even God cannot get outside of the law. I mean, they have God built in and boxed in and hemmed in and boundaried in. And yet Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the law. And those who recognize him with faith, they believe. And those who do not, not only do they not believe, but they persecute those who do believe. Does that sound familiar? It's the way it is today. Oftentimes among different religions. I tell you, by the way, there is more persecution today among radical Hindus in India than any other time in the life of the nation. There's more persecution in the, there was more people killed for Christ in the 20th century than all 20 centuries combined. Did y'all hear that? More people lost their life in the 20th century than all the other 19 centuries combined. So that's, I know this is, this is serious, this is intense, but I want to I walk you through one more time the one and the many, full of the Holy Spirit, full of rage, spiritual sight, spiritual blindness, martyrdom, and you got the murder going on. But the next thing I want you to notice with me is, um, is the forgiveness and the unforgiveness. This is what, this is toward the end of the um, of, of the. Uh, the story here when it says, and as they stoned Stephen, he called out to God and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he said in verse 60, do not charge them with 
this sin. And this, again, is, is the forgiveness component. Do not charge them with this sin, but Father, forgive them. This is exactly what Jesus did in Luke chapter 23, 34, which says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. As I read this, this story, I, for some reason, my, my mind always harkens back to another man, another martyr, who lived not too long removed from Stephen. Stephen, he probably lived around AD 34-ish, 35, somewhere in that time frame, and that is the, the time of his death. But if you fast forward to about 155, there's a man, an old man named Polycarp. And Polycarp, most people believe he was around 93, 94 years of age when the following things happened to him. True story. Polycarp was a disciple of John. When I say John, I'm talking about John the Beloved, John the Apostle, who wrote the book of John, who wrote the Apocalypse, who wrote the first, second, third epistle, that John. And John discipled a man named Polycarp, and Polycarp was the bishop, the pastor of a city called Smyrna, right? And so it was getting very intense to be a follower of Christ in these first 300 years. And so the authorities, the Roman authorities come and they look for Polycarp, but they can't find him because his, his people hide him. <laughs> they literally hide him in remote places in the, in the villages. And finally he said, enough of that, I'm going to face my accusers and come what may. And so they found him, they got him, and they brought him into their arena and they accused him of the highest accusation of treason. And treason in this sense was being an atheist. You see, the, the Christians were accused of being atheists because they did not worship all the Roman gods, therefore they were atheists. And especially would they not worship Caesar. And so because they were atheists, that, that would condemn them to death. So they got Polycarp and they said, okay, here's the deal, dude. You're, you're very old. And you're, you're going to die soon anyhow. Why don't, you do, why don't you just do this? Why don't you save yourself, just renounce Christ, and denounce all the atheists, all of your friends who are atheists, just tell them, y'all, we are wrong, we are atheists, and I just renounce Christ. And here's this famous quote, and if you, you read church history, you've come across this, and it goes something like this, behold, lo, these 86 years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. How in the world could I now betray the Christ who has been so good to me? And those are just some famous quote in Christendom. And they said, okay, we're going to give you one more chance. Polycarp, denounce the atheist. And so he had a little spunk about him, right? So this is what he did. He took his hand and he pointed to all the people in the crowd. <laughs> he says, I denounce you atheists. That's what he did. And that was it. They came, they grabbed him. They placed him on a stake, and they lit the fire, and they were prepared to watch him burn. But guess what happened? He would not burn. Literally, a vault of fire engulfed him, and he's just standing there like this, going, <laughs> waving everybody, how's it going? You know, fire. I mean, there's this protective fire all around him. It, w it will not consume him. So the Romans see it, and they, they're just enraged. I, in my mind, I, I can see the same rage and anger that Stephen was dealing with in his murder and in his martyrdom. True story. Takes his dagger, and he runs into the flame, this Roman soldier does, 
and he pierces the side of Polycarp, pulls his dagger out and thrusts himself away from the flames. I hope y'all are okay with the miraculous because what, what I'm about to share with you is absolutely a miracle. The blood pours out of Polycarp and it extinguishes the flame. The flames just go out. And Polycarp, he breathes his last, he dies. And then, who said church history was boring? Oh my word. Then a dove, a dove, a literal white dove flew out of the very place where he was martyred. I wonder what kind of reception Polycarp received when he went into the presence of God. I think about those, I forget how many, 19, 20, maybe that's a little too much, but those men who were decapitated, remember that just a few years ago on the shores there when the jihadists, the, the ISIS, they, they cut off the heads of those, those Christians, those believers who would not denounce the name of Christ. I wonder what kind of reception they received. You know, you and I in America, there's a very good probability that we're not going to be called upon to lay down our lives in martyrdom. It, it may, um, but probably it, it will not unless you're Rachel Scott and you have a, a gun pointed at you and Columbine denounced the name of Jesus. She said no and he blew her head off. And so there's probably not going to happen to you and me, but I do believe, especially as the days increase and our culture quickly moves from a post-Christian to an anti-Christian culture, there's probably going to be opportunities for you and I to take a very bold stand for Christ. And please don't think I'm mistaken. Please don't think that I'm just, uh, I'm just, just making this up. I mean, th th there's the signs of the times. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, it says during the great tribulation that there will be those who will not bow down to the antichrist and they will be thrust upon by people who are gnawing their teeth. They're gnashing their teeth. And by the way, that is a very graphic way to talk about being cut to the heart, being sawed into gnashing your teeth. This is, the, this is that demonic anger and this vitriol that people are consumed with and they're going to pour it out on followers of Christ. Well, I've got good news for you. If you're needing some good news, we're going to win. We win. That's the, that's the good news. The last thing I want to share with you is this. When Jesus is in your heart and he's before your eyes and he's on your tongue, now that's Stephen, right? Jesus is before your eyes, he's in your heart, he's on your tongue, then forgiveness will flow from your life. And if Stephen can forgive in the midst of that, surely... You and I can forgive a brother or a sister or somebody or something that has betrayed us or, or in our eyes have wronged us. Okay, I got one more question. Oh, if, if, if ever you and I, let's say we were to be accused of being a Christian, Let's fast forward to a few years and let's say maybe in a few decades, who knows, that we're accused of being Christians and we're going to, we're going to suffer. Would there be enough evidence to convict you that you were a Christian? Let's...
Would there be enough evidence? Based on your life, based on what you say, based on how you live and give and the way you treat people, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I want you to pray with you for just a moment and I want to thank God for you and I want to thank the Lord for His Word and thank God that we get the privilege and the great honor of studying it and I don't know about you, but this man, Stephen, this deacon, he just, he's a hero to me. And tonight at six o'clock in the Great Hall, we're going to get an opportunity to ordain a couple more new deacons to Great Hills Baptist Church. And maybe, maybe tonight we'll just look at Stephen again and just say, man, what a, what a guy. Not a, he wasn't a pastor. He was, he was a layman just in love with Jesus and bold, so very bold. Maybe you're here today and you would say, I, I tell you, I don't, I don't even believe there's ever been a time where I've given my life to the Lord, where I've literally surrendered my life to the life of Christ. Oh, I invite you to do that today. Jesus Christ will give you everything you need worth living for and worth dying for. And when you die, you will enter into the very presence of God forever and ever. Hallelujah. What a, what a blessing. So if you're here today and there's never been a moment where you surrendered and yielded your life to Christ, you say, well, at first I want to study all the world religions and I want to study all the, uh, the main prophets and priests and kings and then I'll decide, friend, I just want to save you the time. There's nobody like Jesus. Now, I know, I know that is highly, highly politically, religiously incorrect to say that, but it's still the truth. There's nobody like him. Only one person claimed to be God and substantiated that deity by resurrection. And so I invite you today, give your life to him, surrender to the Lord, even now in faith and in repentance. Maybe you're here today and, and, and you're like me and there's just a moment of, wow, just solitude and, and sobriety where you, you study this man, Stephen, and you question, I wonder if I could do that. I wonder if I could I wonder if I could be willing to lay down my life for Christ. Well, listen to me carefully, and I want you to hear my heart on this. There's, there's probably a very good probability that God's not going to ask you to lay down your life for Him in America, but He is going to ask you to live for Him. And to live for Him, to live for Him in the midst of this crooked, this crooked perverse world in which we live, oh my goodness. That may be more difficult than dying for him. So, Father, I'm praying that you would give us all the grace and all the strength that we need to be the people of God that you called us to be. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for a mighty martyr. Thank you, Lord, for a man of God like Stephen, a man full of grace and wisdom, a man full of power and strength, but preeminently, God, he was a man filled with you, the Holy Spirit. And I just pray, God, that that if that life of Stephen, Lord, his life would so impact mine and influence us that we would, yes, Lord, we would be willing to die for you. But more importantly, Lord, we would be willing to live for you, to give forgiveness when we've been wronged, to issue a word of, of hope when in the midst of so much darkness, to be a light in the midst of darkness, to be that diamond up against that black cloth. Lord, help us to be like this man who reminds us, Lord, so very much of you. And Lord, we pray now that you would draw people to God unto yourself. While the day is still day, while salvation is still available, Lord, we are praying 
that you would draw people to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I do invite you, if you would, stand to your feet. We're going to sing a song of uh, invitation. The altar is open, and we're inviting you to come. And, And for some of you, for the very first time, to give your life to Christ. Others come and just maybe kneel in reverence to the Lord and pray. We invite you to come even now.